0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, Larry and I are chatting with Evgeny, the founder and CEO of Wintermute. Wintermute is one of the largest and most active market makers in crypto. They make markets in many different products and in many different protocols and are pretty active across centralized exchanges, decentralized exchanges. And Evgeny has consistently been one of the most interesting and thoughtful, I think, participants in the market that we've spoken to, we've been wanting to chat about just market making and related topics for some time. It's one of those topics where i think lots of people have opinions on and beliefs about, but i think it's fair to say very few people actually understand what market makers are and really what they do and the value they provide. So i think this conversation is really to fundamentally go into like what market makers are and how they work with projects how they participate in the markets, and also just to talk about Evgeny's opinions on DeFi, on governance, and specific protocols. So without further ado, welcome Evgeny.
1: Hi everyone, really excited to be here.
0: So to jump right into it, Evgeny, could you talk a bit about your background and your journey to starting WinterMute?
1: Basically prior to starting WinterMute, just like a lot of participants in crypto, I was in traditional finance. I was a market-making firm called Optiver, which is back then and still is one of the largest market makers in TradFi, trading all kinds of products, stocks, options, futures, like all kinds of derivatives, effects. Basically, at Optiver, I built ETF market-making desk from scratch. And as part of it, I got a pretty good glimpse at the like how this legacy info works, like basically all the exchanges, but also like all the background behind it, all the clearing houses, custodians, basically seeing all the, well, interesting parts about like how taxes are, how taxes work in different jurisdictions and kind of see, seeing the inefficiencies as well, understanding, seeing like two, three days settlement cycles, all those kind of things. And it was basically being there for pretty much 10 years, helped me to understand, okay, it's pretty much impossible to reform this system from the inside. And it might make sense to just rebuild it from scratch. And that was way before I even got into crypto. And basically, once I started looking into crypto, I realized okay, that new way of thinking, that new way of designing financial systems I can actually achieve what I want to achieve. And that is basically get rid of all this legacy inefficient middlemen.
2: Before we get into crypto-making in particular, Evgeny, I'd love to just chat a little about to your point, like legacy market-making. How's the market structure look? Is there like 10 big firms that control, I don't know, 95% of the profit share of the industry? Just having a mental model or a skeleton for the traditional market-making space would be really helpful for the listeners. You have pretty big firms and all the firms that most of the
1: listeners probably heard about from, from crypto even. So, I mean, you have Jump, obviously, DRW, but you have like firms that are not necessarily that much active in crypto like OptiWare or Not Yet or Citadel. And I would say it's probably 7, 10 really big ones. But then there are like dozens of smaller market makers which are primarily focused on certain niches like options, for example, or effects trading or trading, I don't know, Turkish stocks, for example. There are a lot of these niche market makers. And in general, there are the opportunities are still large enough that it's not a situation where a single market maker would want to get all the markets. Because basically if you achieve like, I don't know, eighty, ninety percent market share, you're probably gonna be screwed one way or another because the whole market will know what your positions are. And it would be pretty easy to make you lose money in a way. So it ends up with, I don't know, five to ten market makers capturing Probably like ninety percent of all the opportunities, and the remaining ones basically looking at certain niches.
2: And something just to double click on that: I've been curious about, I've never had a chance to look into. But if you're a legacy market maker, and maybe you're really good in a particular asset class, maybe you're really good at ETFs like Optiver. How does that skill set transfer over to other asset classes?
1: Usually, what transforms best is tech side of things, especially if the well, for example, what has been a pretty big shift over the last 10, 20 years. And Thread 5 was the emergence of, well, basically fast links between key financial sectors, like between London and Chicago, for example. Basically, this focus on, well, being the fastest, like having the lowest possible latency. That converts pretty much into everything you trade as long as those data centers are trading. If you want to get a signal from Chicago to, say, I don't know, London, Like it can be anything, it can be commodities, it can be S and P futures, it can be FX, it can be well basically all kinds of financial products. So, from that perspective, you would be quite well positioned to, like copy paste certain parts of it. But at the same time, if you dig in much deeper into, I don't know commodities for example, like less liquid commodities would be much tougher to jump into from stocks than futures, for example. There is much more interdependencies and interconnections and similarities between equities and ETFs, for example, because it's very similar kind of products. But yeah, if you jump into more exotic asset classes, it might not be necessarily easy to convert. Like bonds are probably the prime example of this, which are still not really traded that actively on centralized exchanges and TradeFi.
0: Really great explanation and context on just I think traditional market making and market structure. To jump into the crypto side of Gany, what is Wintermute? Like I think you guys are doing a lot of things, but how would you describe sort of your firm?
1: We changed our DNA quite a bit over the last couple of years. What we've been three years ago is primarily just an awesome market maker on centralized exchanges and crypto. And that's basically in a nutshell showing bits and offers programmatically on Binance, Coinbase, FTX, and trying to make money from this small spread, doing like lots of small trades during the day. Where we are now, we are way beyond that. We, we are very active in DeFi, for example, starting with mainnet, obviously, but also expanding to all kinds of L2s like Polygon, like Optimism recent, recently as well. Well, all kinds of sidechains like BSC, newer ones like Solana and Terra. That's how we differentiated ourselves quite a bit, especially last year, because we were one of the very few big market makers with ties to centralized exchanges that actually did that. And on top of that, we are doing OTC trading, which fits really well with basically our access to all kinds of tokens, all kinds of markets. On top of that, we are doing venture investments as well, which is something relatively new. It's We've been doing it for the past one and a half years. And I think you see a lot of crypto market makers moving into that direction. The primary reason, the dual flow is relatively easy to get. And at the same time, if you are looking at DeFi in particular, there is a pretty big synergy between us investing in the protocol and then helping to make it successful by virtue of us providing liquidity.
2: And just going back to the early wintermute days, I remember when we first met Evgeny, it must have been sometime in 2018 or 19. You were telling me how you were leaving OptiVer to start WinterMute. I don't think I remember if you shared the story of like, what was the inspiration to start WinterMute in the first place? Were you trading and market making crypto while at the last firm and you're like, oh, wow, there's a business here? Or was there some other inspiration that kind of came to you?
1: I think it was a combination of factors, really. Like, very basic reason I kind of overstayed my welcome at OptiVer for sure. Like, for majority of trading firms like if you stay there for 10 years you probably stay there for too long and i definitely felt like it was time for a new adventure and at the same time Optima transformed quite a bit of the 10 years i've been there like there was still a very much late startup vibe when i joined and it was possible to do a lot of things without much oversight which can be good and bad but for me it was good because well as a junior trader well, you want to experiment, you want to build your own thing, and you want to rise within the company based on that. But basically, what meanwhile Optio transformed into was a much more safe, much more corporate structure, which basically suited its needs in terms of basically focusing on improving the processes, making small incremental improvements, in things to do, and things are doing basically being best at what it does, which is options, Delta One, like basically all this, like very speed-critical things, where the latency is very important, but it wasn't necessarily interested in expanding to new areas, crypto in particular. And for me, the crypto was interesting, not necessarily just because of volatility, actually, it wasn't really looking at volatility, but because of the things that I mentioned at the very beginning, that it was just a potential answer to solving those inefficiencies that I observed of my 10 years at October and actually wanted to fix. and. I would say, I would admit that when I started WinterMute, I wasn't necessarily bought into, well, the whole token saying Bitcoin in particular. Like I was thinking, okay, that's just something fun I can trade with volatility, which far, far exceeds everything that I've traded in TradFi. But I think like five years in, and now it's like almost five years since I started, I actually became a proper crypto maxi. I actually believe this thing can transform a lot of things in this world, not necessarily like just make everyone rich, but actually improve the way everything can be reorganized and also getting rid of certain government functions, getting rid of a lot of middlemen in financial sector. So it's been quite an
2: interesting journey in that regard. It's always interesting to me how you sometimes have founders who, when they start their company, they're really not that bullish on the company or the industry they're in. They're like semi-bullish, that's why they started it, but but not 100% certain of the future. And then as you get employees and revenue and perhaps upside, like the bullishness increases. And so I feel like there's this like narrative in the market. You have to be 100% certain when you start a company of what you're going to do. But the reality is people sometimes just don't know and they get increasingly bullish as the team grows and their dependencies grow and the market grows. It really is a fascinating thing to see.
1: Yeah. To me, it's like, I'll tell you even more. <laughs> like when I started it, I actually really didn't want to do anything trading related, but... Basically, I just moved to London. I didn't know what to do, and I thought, okay, I know how to do this trading sign. I'll start with it and see where it heads. Maybe I'll pivot into something more exciting. But yeah, as I started hiring people, as I did like a few funding rounds, and as we started growing, I actually understood, okay, well, first of all, I started enjoying this trading thing again. But secondly, I realized that well, what excites me even more is well, building things, building an organization, hiring new people, like and seeing all this working like for myself, not for another firm I would be employed for.
2: Going back to those days, if I recall correctly, I feel like a lot of VCs at the time didn't really understand what market making is. A lot of them still don't. What was the sort of response you got from investors when you first pitched them on the idea? Yeah, I think
1: majority of investors still don't get it, I would say, because market makers typically don't raise venture rounds. I think it started changing with crypto. Now you see even Citadel raised around, round, which is like very much unheard of. But if you look at market makers and Treadfly, half of them are structured like funds and another half structured like prop trading. Well, roughly, maybe it's like 64. I don't know. But all the prop trading firms, like they don't need equity funding because they, well, typically they either just have their own money to start with and then they just team up with a prime broker and basically get funding from them. And with the fund structures, yeah, you just have LPs. Just like venture would. and for us early on, it was a very conscious choice that we want to go with a prop model, primarily because I wanted more alignment on uh, longer term nature of the business. I didn't want the LPs to breeze down my neck and tell me, "Okay, where are our returns this quarter or next quarter?" I actually wanted to get alignment with like longer term investors, which is pretty much venture. But it was very difficult to explain. It was a triple difficulty, like because. We raised money in crypto, which is already not that straightforward to explain to people. Then we raised money for market making deep business, which is again quite tough to explain. And thirdly it was also pretty much middle of crypto winter. It was back in 2018, 2019. And that also didn't help. So that was pretty tough. Like if you look at valuations now, like maybe not now, but like six months ago, everyone could raise like 50, 100 million pre on the seed level. We were quite happy with Stan (laughs) back then, I
0: remember. I think one theme we've talked about is just, I think, the blending of market makers becoming active adventurers, sort of displacing the value that other kinds of investors provide, given the large synergies in crypto markets. You also mentioned how Citadel took an outside venture funding itself, similar to you guys. Why do you think Citadel took outside funding? What are your general thoughts on just like the future of early stage investing. It doesn't feel like it's enough to just be like a generalized venture investor at this point. To be honest, I was quite puzzled
1: when it happened. In hindsight, it makes a bit more sense. And to me, the most logical explanation I see to the Citadel raising money is just them seeing how overheated the market was and just selling the equity at the high. My guess would be it was just like a not really investment and alignment decision, but just a trading decision. We have our own Citadel stock. If we sell it now, it will be overvalued because the whole market is overvalued. So why don't we do it? That's how I see it. Cynical, I guess, but I think it was a very good play from Ken Griffin.
0: Would expect no other takes from a market maker. <laughs> awesome. Another thing I've seen you guys become much more active in project governance recently. I've seen... Evgeny, you and Callan comment on various forums, talk about how you guys can help projects publicly. Just curious, why are you interested in governance? Why are you guys sort of actively posting about it?
1: There is like a very logical part of it, which is we are investor in a lot of protocols. I think it's over seventy now, and some of them have very active governance forums like very active proposals being floating around and it just makes sense for us to get involved from an investor standpoint, simply because as a long-term investor, we want well, the value of our backs to go up and being active participant in governance, which means that either proposing solutions that we think will increase the value of the token in the long term, or trying to fight the proposals, which we think are not really beneficial to long-term survival of the project or thriving even. It just makes sense. At the same time, basically on the brand side and like the value side of Bintramute itself, we want to position ourselves basically as a firm that wants the longer-term survival of our ecosystem, not just to squeeze every last penny from every bull cycle, but actually make the whole experiment succeed. And so we kind of see it as an interesting exercise to get more involved on the governance level even with protocols that we are not necessarily invested with or that we wouldn't get that much economic benefit from but hopefully to get it developing in a different direction because currently I personally believe that most of the governance systems in DeFi are currently not working that well and I think like we can talk a lot more and get much more into detail but in a nutshell it's either pseudo governance where Token holders can in theory vote, but you have, I don't know, a bunch of, I don't know, venture firms plus the team behind who are pretty much call, calling all the shots. Or you have a very much anarchy kind of system where every single small decision is being voted on, but at the same time, there is no long-term plan and just nothing works. And there is nothing in between. There is currently like very little number of alternative systems. We see our mission as well to try to change that.
0: Totally makes sense. And yeah, I definitely have agreed with your, I think, diagnosis of the current state of protocol governance for many DeFi projects. Given some of these feelings, are there any ideas or anything you wish projects did? Like, should they just move away from DAO governance entirely? Should decisions just be more centralized? Like... In a perfect world, sort of how would you try to change things?
1: Yeah, I think the whole governance thing started with optimistic or idealistic notions that, okay, we just give all the power to the users and they will vote and everyone will be happy. But because, first of all, like you have voter apathy, you have like people who just want to get rich and they will actually vote for populist ideas. It's just not going to work. I think, realistically. And I mean, you can see everyone like, well, Vitalik proposing quadratic voting, like everyone trying to like improve on the current system. And I actually don't see why we need to, there is this tendency in crypto to invent the wheel over and over again. And we do have corporate governance and traditional economy working sometimes good, sometimes not good, but it works. And so you have CEO, you have different business units, and the models that I would love to see being explored much more. And I think you kind of see certain DAOs like Maker, for example, exploring it and the business units, for example, that are being voted on. But in general, the systems that I would love to be explored much more would be simply to vote in a CEO, let's say for a year, who would handpick their own team and people voting for a vision of that particular person and that person then has a budget to exercise this vision. And then there will be like those big election events, I don't know, once a year or like whatever frequency. And same time, it would be afterwards, it would be quite centralized to allow those protocols to compete properly with centralized entities because currently decentralized entities are pretty much powerless against the centralized entities. Like decentralized entities are like the only thing they are really good at is like, guerrilla warfare, like there's somebody invading your country and you are like attacking from the forest. That's what decentralized systems are really good at. But they're not really good at executing longer term plans. That's I think what most of the experimentation should be focused on.
2: I think Derek and I and Reverend General, we strongly agree. And the part that's a little bit uncomfortable to talk about, but I feel like everyone knows deep down and speaks about certainly in private is the problem with centralizing or putting a CEO in place is all of a sudden the network or the DAO kind of looks like a company which will make the tokens look a lot like securities. And the folks who issued them look like they did an unregistered securities offering or something of the like, at least in US regulation. And I feel like a lot of teams as a result are playing this Governance, Kabuki theater to appear decentralized. But to your point, in reality, a lot of the actual projects are very much centralized. And it's a tricky situation for the market to be in until there's more regulatory clarity.
1: No, I agree. I understand where it comes from, and regulatory doesn't make it that easy. But at the same time, I don't know, it doesn't have to be called a CEO. Or it can be like general manager or even something sort of like coordinator. It can be like something very innocently
0: sounding, like coordinator who will just coordinate <laughs> stuff. Stuart. Stuart, yeah. Park Rangers. <laughs> sort of along the same lines of Gani, it feels like sentiment on governance tokens is pretty low. In the past year and a half, we've seen the narrative change from you can map out revenues and cash flows for DeFi protocols because they have governance tokens and potential fees to where we stand today, where people are like governance tokens are worthless, fees will never be turned on, tokens like Uni are not worth anything. Where do you stand on this? Like, how do you feel about governance tokens and economic rights associated with them? I think it's all
1: pretty much comes down to what U.S. regulators think. And I think you see companies, you see proper securities in U.S. that pay no dividends. They don't pay anything to shareholders, still trading at pretty big valuations. So it is possible to not produce any cash flows, which is basically dividends, and still be worth something. And so it's like I would say the bottom, the very much bottom valuation for all those DAOs should obviously be like, okay, what what the size of their treasury outside of their native token? So that's quite straightforward. And then if you look, okay, what kind of future cash flows they can enable, it's a question whether they can enable those cash flows with regulators accepting this. And so I think what's potentially being priced now is not necessarily the inability of those DAOs to... Returns those cash flows to the token holders, but potentially U.S. regulators not being particularly happy about it. It's really buying Uni or DivideDX or like any other token is currently basically a bet whether this will be resolved positively or negatively.
2: On that point, something I see people chat about a lot on Twitter is this dividends and cash flows piece. But I feel like people sometimes just forget that to have a dividend, you've got to have revenues to start with. You just got to have some money coming in to keep the lights on and pay the bills. And for a lot of projects, the problem is they just don't even have revenues. And so we're not even getting to the cash flows part yet. We're just getting to having some money coming in the door. And if you look at a lot of growth companies that don't have dividends, that don't have cash or positive cash flows, they still have revenues. And they're taking those revenues and just reinvesting them back in the business because they think you can reinvest the dollar for more than a dollar of future return. But it seems like For a lot of tokens, they have no revenue, they have no business model. And as a result, they may never get cash flows in the first place.
1: I think, like a lot of them, especially like even the worst case of this, are the protocols that are actually doing emissions, but those are dividends just paid in native tokens. And that's also not great because certain protocols were able to enable this flywheel, but ultimately, I don't think it's going to work. All this like crazy inflation that's going on with a lot of token protocols. It's not going to end well, ultimately.
2: Any thoughts on ETH2?
1: I think it will happen. I don't know.
2: <laughs> Eventually.
1: No, I think in general, it's going to be really interesting to see like how it works, when it works. And also looking at how all this like, staking derivatives will work as well. For example, what LIDA is doing. Because, yes, there is definitely, currently STEs, for example, is just a token which is Trading close to one-to-one with Ease simply because people expect the merge to happen. Once it happens, I think people will start realizing, okay, it makes much more sense to hold this like staking derivatives, not just for Ease but for other protocols as well, because it's much better on the investment side of things. We've been a supporter of this for quite a while, actually.
2: I can't help but think all the staking derivatives is really going to be great for sophisticated market makers like you guys. I mean, if we just look at historically, when markets repriced or mispriced certain securities, there was always an opportunity for someone to come in and make money if they understood how to price these things. I mean, let's go way back and unwind the clock. I mean, Benjamin Graham did that for stocks in the United States right after the Great Depression. Carl Icahn sort of did that for options. Rentech, if I recall correctly, did it for commodity and currency futures. And being the first to know how to price stuff, particularly stuff that's a little bit new in the market, hasn't really wrapped its head around is big business.
1: No, it is. I think it's actually much less about being the first to do something, but being the one with the most sophisticated network of different connectivities, because that's pretty much how we build the intermediate business as well. We are we're not necessarily the first one to be trained on Syria mainnet, not even the first ones to trade on MMs, for example, like one of the first, but definitely not the very first. But because we have this interconnectivity, with all the L2s, for example, with all the different sidechains, basically aiming for this multi-chain world to happen is what sets us really apart.
0: And just to spend a bit more time on Wintermute's capabilities and the way that you guys work with projects, like I think there's a fair amount of crypto founders and operators that listen to this podcast. When should projects begin thinking about Working with market makers, when does it make sense? There's obviously many different ways that that collaboration can look like, but what sort of advice would you give to them?
1: I think, first of all, it depends on the nature of the protocol. Like if it's a DEX, it definitely makes sense to start talking to market makers very early on, already at the seed investment stage, just because you involve one, two or three market makers as a seed investors with an idea that they effectively start providing liquidity on your DEX when the time comes. That just makes sense. But a bit later on, like let's say you haven't involved any of them or maybe they haven't integrated yet, at some point you do have a token. And then it might make sense to, if you get listed on Coinbase, for example, Coinbase is not going to list you if you don't have a market maker attached. Some protocols can say, okay, we don't really care if we get listed on exchange. I think it's actually totally fine. I think all the centralized trading is not necessarily the most important part. I don't think found like I mean I'm not necessarily talking in my favor now, but I'm maybe shooting myself in the foot. But ultimately, a protocol can be totally successful without being listed on centralized exchange. I think being listed on centralized exchange helps you in two ways. On the other hand, like on one hand, it does help you to get more users for your protocol. Although, well, you need to be cognizant of majority of investors on Coinbase and Binance just. Trading the token because they're looking at graphs and they don't really care about what your token is doing and they're not going to participate in governance or anything else. But on the other hand, it's also about potentially having access to cheaper cost of capital. And what I mean by that is obviously, if you get listed on Binance or Coinbase, your token price will go up. This effect is much smaller now compared to where it used to be, but it's still there. And basically, if you are listed on a proper centralized exchange or more than one, it will be much easier for you, for example, to do a I don't know strategic round, OTC round, for example, because it can potentially attract much bigger range of investors who will know, okay, I will buy this token with I don't know two-year lock or something, and then two years later, I can still sell it on Binance or Coinbase. That's a value proposition that is pretty clear, but it should be really clear to every founder, like why they engage market makers and like why do you want to get listed on centralized exchanges like What is the end goal? It cannot be just, I don't know, because I want price of my token to go up because ultimately it doesn't really matter. Like your token will go up if your protocol is good, ultimately. And your protocol is good if you have a good product, if you generate cash flows, if your community is good, like a bunch of those really important factors. And we've seen a lot of protocols being listed on centralized exchanges with either no product or really bad one. And ultimately not only you don't succeed, you also burn a lot of potential goodwill with the market as well, if you list before you have something decent and stuff. Without naming names, but we've seen a, like a whole range of protocols on certain blockchains, like the certain L1s being like this and a lot of investor trust being lost because of that. So I think yeah, involving market makers to get listed on centralized exchange can be good, but you need to think about it. And this is the way it works with us and with other market makers is we will create this value for you. We'll make the listing successful, but ultimately you want to get more from this than just like us being there on like first week of listing. You want to engage those market makers in a much broader set of services, for example, be it doing all kinds of OTC services for protocols, for treasuries, for employees even. They are very open. That's how we differentiate compared to us. Market makers to do more complex deals. We are quite open to, for example, providing liquidity on the DAX for which token we are market makers for. We are very open to be part of a strategic round, for example, or for example, providing liquidity on L2s if your protocol is moving, like moving to another chain. So that's how we differentiate and kind of goes back to this idea of ours that. We want to be very much interconnected in the multi chain world. And if we are, then we can provide this benefit, not just on centralized exchanges, but on all the DEXs as well. And that's, I think, going forward, is much more important than just a Binance listing.
2: Could not agree more with pretty much everything you've said. I mean, when I see teams super focused at the early stage, like pre launch on on liquidity for their token and listings, I mean, that's a huge red flag instead of focusing on fundamentals and have the price and listings take care of itself. But to your point, Some projects do get that positive feedback loop from liquidity and the token price. And it's something they do focus on and view as a leading indicator of fundamentals. But a lot of founders in my experience they're like, okay, well, we decided we want to get a market making deal. And they go to all the market makers, maybe Wintermute and some others who I won't name on the show to make you guys look really good. And all the market making agreements, all the contracts, they're all super different. And founders get really confused as to how to actually structure these deals. How does Wintermute structure contracts if you do have a standard? And how do you think founders should even think about pricing these contracts?
1: Yeah, pricing is always tough because well, okay. First, like, the way we, we structure those is very similar to all the pretty much most of the major players currently. So it usually comes as, well, it's basically a loan, and this loan typically comes with an option. And this option is about, let's say I borrow a million tokens from you, and then in one year time, after I successfully helped with liquidity provision, all agreed centralized exchanges, and the protocol is happy about our performance, We basically have an option to either return this million tokens or return the dollar value of those tokens at a predetermined strike price. And the strike price is usually one of the main negotiation points between us and the protocol. And we typically set this above the price where it's trading, because otherwise we have a very unhealthy incentive to just sell it all, or at least a big part of it, which we don't necessarily do, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to provide liquidity in. if you deal with more than one market maker, it definitely doesn't make sense to give them unhealthy incentives, let's put it like this, because at the end of the day, everyone is here to make money, and you need to be cognizant that all the market makers have to make money. And so this kind of setup, it kind of evolved over the last three, four years. Like The way it started initially back in 2017, 2018, like you had a bunch of small market makers who were, Basically, providing markets for money, getting paid I don't know five, ten k months by all this like new ICO projects, and the idea was they would effectively ask the protocol to transfer their native tokens and whatever counter tokens like USDT or ETH or BTC to the centralized exchange account, and then those small market makers would connect to it using the API keys provided by the protocol and market make sort of on their behalf, which I think was a pretty dangerous. Kind of set up because you open up yourself all kinds of manipulation. And I'm not saying like all oh, market makers did it, but I'm pretty sure at least some of them did because yeah, if they have private keys to your own account, they will market make, but they can like run a parallel sets of bots to actually just argue, for example. Like it's very easy to set up something like this. And actually, when we launched Wintermute, our first idea was okay, we're going to compete with those bad market makers and we're going to do the like a good market making. The way we set it up. Very initially, we still received whatever five, ten k months, but we would receive the protocol tokens, and then we'll provide we we'll trade from our own account, so they wouldn't need to bother about like us screwing them one way or another. But luckily for us, we set it up <laughs> at the beginning of bear market, so we didn't have that much time to make any money out of it because the whole like ICO market died, and so we actually pivoted pretty much straight away into like normal prop trading, normal market making. And when we return to this business of market making for protocols, like this new option-based model evolved because a lot of market makers became big enough to say, okay, this 5, 10K a month is not super scalable. It's actually really lame to send this invoice every month and keep arguing with the protocol every month whether we deserved it or not. It's much easier to do this option bid because, let's be honest, like it's much less straightforward to... Come up with a value for this option for the founders for the founding teams so it was a much easier sell back in the days and i know some of our competitors got very sweet deals with getting like i don't know five even ten percent of protocols of whole protocols as an option with a very nice track price and effectively just getting like a lot a lot of value for free and when we got into the business again we thought okay like the way we're going to differentiate ourselves we're just going to ask for less to start with but then also try to provide more value beyond that. So everything DeFi related, obviously was a pretty good selling proposition for us, but also anything on the OTC side of things as well, because that's, we saw it, okay, we don't necessarily need to make money on this option, but if we can get those protocols as OTC trading counterparties, it will be mutually beneficial for us and for them because they would get access to good liquidity and we would get access to more counterparties.
2: One unfortunate thing, I think, very few people saw coming is before DeFi summer started, a lot of DeFi teams, they had these deals with market makers at relatively, at the time, what felt like reasonable strike prices for the options. And of course, when DeFi summer happened, all these market makers exercised the options and made a lot of money. But what the teams I don't think saw coming is, of course, the prices going up for the tokens so much. And as a result, them not having many tokens left in the company to incentivize employees with. And so fast forward to today, there's companies out there that they're a company, but they have no tokens or very few tokens to give to employees as part of an incentive or retainment package and are kind of stuck in this weird area where they have equity. They give that, but people want tokens and they're not sure how to get them into the company's hands because the market makers took them all out of the coffers. And of course, that was just bad thinking on the team's part, not seeing this coming. Yeah, but at the same time, it was always peculiar to me. I kind of understand where it comes from, but I think it's
1: more like lazy than good design that most of protocols have set number of tokens. Like I totally get why Bitcoin needs to have finite amount of tokens. It will never change. That makes sense for Bitcoin. But why does Uniswap need to have, I don't know, whatever billion number of tokens they currently have outstanding? Like why shouldn't they be able to change it? And I think... The answer to this initially was, okay, like if you set it in stone, then it would be impossible for somebody, I don't know, maybe to hack us and to issue like unlimited number of tokens or something. But like given where technology is now, I'm pretty sure if you're a decent technical founder, you can code quite a lot of like safety features inside your smart contract to make sure that this doesn't happen. Because like, if you think about normal startup, normal corporation, it can issue as much equity as it wants effectively. Like, there are certain limitations on the governance side that it needs to get, I don't know, approval of majority of shareholders. But ultimately, I don't know, Apple can issue a lot of equity, like every year if it wants to. Google is the same, like any startup can issue 10% more equity to incentivize new new employees, for example. But those protocols are kind of like, well, stuck now is, I don't know, we have a billion tokens, that's it. I think with all the new protocols that come into play later on, they should seriously question that. Why do you have this? What's this amazing benefit of having like a billion tokens ever? Why would you limit yourself like this? Because, I don't know, it's just stupid, I think.
2: Yeah, totally. My sense for that is it's an ideological thing that started with Bitcoin. This fixed supply meme made its way into protocols that are just basically building products. And maybe to your point, a company could issue... A new options pool, maybe 10% of the float to incentivize new employees. Projects could do the same. But this meme of fixed supply is so powerful. And there's so many market participants that really go after you if you print more tokens that I think teams are afraid, even though that's the right thing to do. You can literally set up protocols that... I
1: don't know, if 70% or 50% of token holders vote for it, you just issue more tokens, for example. And there is a time lock or whatever. Like You can make it pretty complex and totally f- that in the ways that most people will be fine with. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> there is this meme about maximum supply, but now there is a whole set of memes about FDV, for example,
2: which one is superior. <laughs> Circling back to the market-making deals, one thing we encourage teams to think about is just the opportunity cost of giving market makers these options or token warrants out of the company where, let's say you're giving the market maker, I don't know, let's take a number, 1% of that for the fully diluted supply and options to buy tokens, 1% of the total supply for some pre-agreed strike price. The opportunity cost of that is you could probably hire two to four people, full-time employees with that amount of tokens. That's the market rate. For early employee token issuance and the question then for teams is do i get more out of having liquidity and volumes on my token or would i get more from having four people or two people work full-time on the protocol and getting into that habit of opportunity cost thinking i think would be really helpful to a lot of founders
1: oh, i agree and i think ultimately the founders should question themselves because the reason most people hire market makers at the moment is just to get listed on centralized exchanges. And they should ultimately ask themselves, is it worth it for us or we can just wait? And Because ultimately, once you become really successful, I don't know, Aave or Uni, they don't need a market maker now. Like they don't. If they wouldn't be listed now, they would just get listed automatically. And you actually see a lot of high profile protocols being listed pretty much right away, like. Like you look at Optimism, for example, they still needed the market maker, obviously, but it's much easier for them to get listed than for seed level protocols that nobody heard of. But then it's a big question. Why would the seed level protocols that nobody heard of would get listed right away? So like maybe it makes sense to build something to, yeah, like you said, invest into like three, four new employees. And then instead of giving away one or two percent of your tokens, you end up giving away, I don't know, half percent or less because ultimately, as a market maker, what we need, we need certain dollar value. If your protocol, for example, has a 100 million market cap, we need at least a couple of million dollars worth of tokens to market make on a few exchanges, few centralized exchanges, which means that you need to give us like 2-3% of outstanding tokens. If your protocol market cap is a billion, we might need more because you probably get listed on more exchanges, but you will end up with, I don't know, half percent dilution, for example. So it's Scales quite well to your point, I think it would make sense for protocol to grow a bit first and then to start looking at centralized exchange listings. The main reason I would say to look for centralized exchange listings sooner than later is if you just want to have access to cheap better liquidity if you want to finance your operations going forward because yeah you can give your employees tokens, but yeah if they don't have anywhere to cash them out or like if there is just a lonely Uniswap pool, which can tank the token price by 50% if somebody cashes out the salary. It's not really great.
2: As far as shopping for market-making services, so if you're a founder and you're evaluating which firm to go with, what are the purchasing criteria you think founders should look to when they're looking at these deals, assuming all of the terms are constant? If all the financial terms are constant, I think you probably want to look at
1: whoever can provide more like additional services or more additional like alignment. And ultimately, who you just like working with, I guess. Because you will stick with those market makers for like six to 12 months. You will occasionally talk to them. And then if you get extra stuff from them, OTC, for example, or they just give you market color every now and then, or they might introduce you to investors, that's also possible. That definitely beats a market maker who just provides market making and nothing else. And I think a bunch of bigger market makers, you can definitely ask for more, us included. And I already mentioned that on the one hand, we can do all this kind of venture OTC stuff. On the other hand, we like helping teams when it comes to everything DeFi as well.
0: On the topic of DeFi, I think I would say it feels, again, like sentiment on DeFi isn't super high right now. A lot of protocols have launched in the past year, year and a half that I think people are now realizing there isn't really an end product that there's demand for. It's just sort of various structured and financial products repackaged with huge amounts of emissions and liquidity incentives. And now that the market's turned a little bit and prices have come down, that feedback loop just isn't really working. And it's like some of the DeFi 1.0 projects as people call them, like Uniswap, Aave, MakerDAO, like they're still doing well, even as incentives are dying down, but it doesn't feel like there's been a huge amount of innovation or organic usage outside of these huge liquidity incentives. So curious what your take on that is. Do you think it's overly cynical? Do you think there's something coming down the line? How do you feel generally?
1: Well, starting with cynical part, I think this correction makes sense in a way that, it's true that number of actual real-world users for DeFi is not huge. It's not like we're not talking about millions. I mean, maybe we're talking about a million or more when it comes to Binance Smart Chain and simply because of well, the user base of Binance. But if you're talking about Ethereum mainnet, I don't think it's in millions, really. It's a lot of wallets, but it's not necessarily millions of people trading there. And that kind of reckoning has been in the works for quite some time. But in a less cynical way, it's not only DeFi that is getting punished, it's pretty much everyone that's getting punished. If you look at all gross stocks everywhere in the world, even the ones with with like, well, normal products like well, I'm not even talking about Peloton, but like if you look at Netflix, for example, it got punished pretty hard. We all use and love Netflix. Well, me at least. So you kind of see this correction pretty much everywhere. I think it's much more macro driven than not. And I think the protocols that will survive are the ones that been there building in the trenches in 2019, 2020, and maybe before that, and that survived. And I think like all the really, really new stuff. On one hand, it's kind of unfortunate they have like a lot of those protocols have massive war chests. So probably they will become this like mini, not naming names, but like a zombie protocols with just huge treasuries trying to come up with something, but ultimately just dying. Really interesting dynamic for me, I think, if this bear market continues and if the macro continues, would be to see some consolidation in space as well. Because on one hand you have a lot of protocols with pretty huge treasuries, but not necessarily an exciting product, or maybe they just like stuck. On the other hand you have a bunch of teams with pretty either good developers or really interesting protocols, but maybe not enough users and definitely not enough gold in the coffers to survive them for the next 6-12 months. And it just makes sense for the wealthy ones to consume the dying ones or so like the ones that are going bankrupt. And so this consolidation would be quite interesting to observe.
2: While well, on the topic of DeFi, we have the perfect guest to ask a question. A hot topic, I would say, on Twitter, which is, how do you feel about AMMs versus central limit order book exchanges? My opinion didn't really
1: change over the last couple of years. Basically, I still think it's Kind of a dead end in terms of just how it works, simply because you cannot fully replicate a proper market maker by such a simple like three-letter formula, basically. I think, and even Univ3, it's still, it's just like too crude to for market makers. Like we actually are using it. We tried to use it as a market maker. And well, it's impossible to use on mainnet because of the gas fees, it's basically really pain to run them in, low-fee environment like optimism, for example, because it's just too small a number of parameters to play with. Really proper market making strategies are way more complicated than a three-letter formula or even three. At the same time, like certain elements of it, for example like curve and curve wars and the whole ecosystem around it, that I kind of find fascinating. So I'm still watching it. So that part might actually survive and strive going forward, especially if this like flywheel continues like works. But basically, having an AMM model with two risk assets, which are not correlated at all against each other, I'm not very bullish on that.
2: As a non-expert on this stuff, it is interesting to me how there's smart people on sort of both sides who know what they're talking about, who fundamentally disagree on the future of AMMs versus C-LOBs. And I'm closer to you if someone were to put a gun to my head. But nonetheless, it is interesting to see how people who do understand the trade-offs do different opinion
1: No, totally and we see like whole academic papers and all kinds of venture firms backing one thing or another yeah it's it's really interesting yeah like but the whole mm idea is it's in reality like the most straightforward market making algorithm anyone who wants to do market making comes up with and they basically like do it and then they keep improving it and then like if they're successful they build something decent and AMMs are kind of just like stuck there. Most basic market-making algorithms uh, they can be. That's what I find weird.
0: <laughs> last question from me is, what are your thoughts on airdrops as a concept? I think it's just as a reminder. Historically, airdrops haven't actually been very useful or honestly good for most protocols. I think it's only in the last year and a half, starting with Uniswap that projects have started to use them and now everyone's doing them as a way to distribute tokens. They're innovating on the model, more targeted airdrops, filtering out folks so to prevent against symbols. But I don't know, it kind of feels like airdrops have become normalized. And no matter how much you try to protect against people gaming the system, it will just be a never-ending losing battle. Again, just look at Optim as an example. I think there there's some mistakes made in the airdrop, but The amount of, I think, anger towards optimism for still giving free assets to users, I think is pretty surprising in some ways. So just curious, like I wouldn't be surprised if in a year or two, airdrops were no longer popular.
1: I've been fascinated by that for some time, actually, on both sides. On one hand, I'm really fascinated by the people who had pissed off that didn't get free money. That to me is continuously like very, very strange. You get free money, you're not happy, you get too little of that, you're not happy, you didn't get, you're not happy. Like it's impossible to please everyone. If you get a lot of it, you'll be happy, but you're probably gonna sell because as a normal person and you suddenly get, I don't know, twenty K dollars on your account, you probably will cash out some of it. And from protocol level, I'm not necessarily sure what it accomplishes. Yes, like you do create this user base, but it's all like you basically try to incentivize people who used your products, you want to like give them something. But then why not just do it transparently right away? And obviously, like if you do it transparently right away, you might end up with DYDX where every now and then there is some exceptional amount of trading just because people are trying to farm those rewards. But yeah, I don't know, like I think it should be just much more transparent and more forward-looking than not because otherwise it's kind of a naive approach that I know, we'll build it and then we'll reward it. And there is this like the whole cycle of people being unhappy, and protocols being unhappy, that people are unhappy, and then protocols. You see all those things on optimism forums popping up saying that we'll exclude all the people who sold the OP tokens from future airdrops. Like it's what was supposed to be like a nice gift to the community suddenly becomes like a whole warfare with like trying to prevent civil attacks and what's not. I think it should be just like forward looking instead of past looking.
2: There is this interesting dynamic in crypto and probably traditional business too, where if you're a first mover and you do something first, maybe like the first airdrop, there is value to be gained. But right after that move has been done, having everyone pursue the same strategy just reduces the effectiveness of the strategy for everyone involved. And despite that, it seems like there's this dynamic that founders and investors, and it's a very human dynamic, to look at what peers are doing and basically copying it. So if someone prominent did an airdrop and it worked really well, well, that's the permission to do an airdrop too. And people don't really think twice about it. They're like, well, we're going to do it too because everyone else did it. And look how successful they were, when in reality, it probably wasn't a success for anyone but one of the first few players who did it. Then on top of it,
1: like I think it also distorts the proper signals a lot because like any new protocols that will launch now, there is a certain expectation that they will do airdrop, And so people will go and use it for a few times just to get the airdrop. And at the same time, the protocol might see, okay, oh, look, 10,000 people are using us. We must be doing something right. All while those 10,000 people, like half of them might be bots and another other half of them might be just people who are just trying to get like a few hundred bucks for free. And the product might actually suck. And they will never know until they actually do an airdrop and then see who actually remains, <laughs> so I think there is a lot of like game theory behind
2: it, which is not very well thought through when winter mute airdrop that's my only question. Well, luckily,
1: we are not a token company, but
2: I don't know like if we
1: were to design a protocol, I would probably not be inclined to do airdrop for early users unless it was like very clearly specified to them that it might happen if we were ever to do it for any protocols that we incubate i would say we would make it very transparent that's all i can say about
0: it awesome afghani this has been a really fascinating discussion i think about a lot of different topics market making DeFi, governance incentives and it's always nice to talk with folks that have no fluff and are very direct and blunt so really enjoyed this conversation.
1: No, likewise. I think that, that's what bear markets are really good for. That I think you have a lot more
2: people who are willing to be blunt and finally say what they think.
0: It's now socially acceptable.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that's something Derek and I talk about all the time. It's during a bear market, it just becomes socially acceptable to, to call out problems. But in an ideal world, you could do the same thing in a bull market and fix those problems while the price is going up. That'd be way better.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, Evgeny, thanks again. And excited to revisit this conversation in a year from now.
2: Yeah, sounds
1: good. Thanks, guys.